0: In other words, it's something I would have liked to have some clear advice on 35 years ago when I got myself into this. Um, Most of my teaching, in fact, is precisely this. It's what I would have loved to have heard when I got myself into this. Um, So what informs my, my reflections are questions like, Buddhist meditation teachings come from a time when people did not reflect in psychological terms about their lives. What happens to a tradition when it meets practitioners who reflect in psychological terms about their life and their experience? Um, as, As I think you all do. We all do, not very long, maybe 80 years or so at best couldn't say when exactly it began in, in the English-speaking world, but uh, in the German-speaking world where I come from, it, it began shortly after Kafka. He was one of the last ones to hold out against psychological self-reflection. So somewhere I would reckon in the 20s and 30s of last century, people started to think about themselves in psychological term. If you care to read literature, and I trust you do, um, you find plenty of fine writers who reflect on psychological issues, but not in psychological language. Even more pressing seems to be the question, what happens to practitioners and their psychological processes if their traditions don't account for those? Yeah. That's an interesting bit, that bit that should trouble me as a teacher of meditation. Does psychological practice really protect me against neurosis? Is there a difference between need and greed? These are important points, I think. When I go home tonight, I will find a little drawing, and on that drawing it says... Let me quote that correctly. The winds of change blow across fields of emptiness. Who then can they harm? The winds of change blow across fields of emptiness. Who then can they harm? The Buddhist contemplative in me applauds and thinks this is poetic, this is beautiful, this describes two fundamental. Characteristics of uh, experience, the experience of impersonality, the imp- experience of transience. The contemplative psychotherapist in me is outraged. It, is, yeah. it says, okay, where is the subject here? Yeah. Do we really address this issue of human life by simply? invalidating it out of existence. There's no subject in there. There's nobody there. Just fields of emptiness and winds of change. It doesn't really do justice to my experience of satisfaction or my experience of suffering. It doesn't really do justice to my uh, developmental needs nor to my possibilities of growth doesn't really do justice to my capacity to engage and act and love and understand. All this is just fields of emptiness and winds of change. So this, this is the conundrum I'd like to say something about tonight. My spiritual practice began with, I don't know, in my teens, stuff I didn't understand but somehow seemed important and suddenly wormed itself into my attempts to live a normal life. And in my very early 20s, I was a meditator in the Zen tradition, and um, my first meditative instructions were rather, say, rudimentary, let's put it like that. Sit still, don't botch, don't believe anything that moves between your ears. (laughs) Um, That was just right. You know, that was just the sort of sophistication I needed. That was really customized to my capacity to receive, and also to I needed structure. I needed some clear pieces of advice, and I did that. You know, we wrapped, we folded newspaper, we used some I think you call it power tape around it, and uh, then we sat on it facing a white wall, in Ronnie Segal's dancing studio down. You know, downstairs, that's what we did. Some guy took, put on a black, a black coat and did funny things with his drums. It's made dooku, 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 dooku. And I looked at my wall there and tried not to believe anything that buzzed mm-hmm. between my ears. Yeah. Well, that was just what it needed. But as time went by, uh, it seemed other pieces of instructions were needed. Um, my Zen tradition was not particularly useful. They taught me things like, um, "This whole world is one shining pearl." Yeah. Master Genja, seventeenth century. Nowadays, I know what he meant. He meant, you know, that samsara and nirvana are not different things. You know, the whole of it is one luminous, shining pearl. Then it just didn't have anything to do with my knee pain. Yeah, I regretted the lack of connect there. It didn't help me. Um, When I met the folks of the inside tradition, in fact, it was monks. um, And I wasn't particularly keen on monks. I had just gotten rid of Catholicism. I was not keen on a new religion. Um, I still was really recovering from the last one. Um, So I wasn't really on the lookout for more religion. It's just that when I wanted to meditate, and I was quite clear that this was important for reasons I couldn't rationalize, but I could clearly feel So every every time I found people who knew something about meditation, I ended up with those Buddhists again. They seemed to just be most savvy around meditation. So when I came across teachings from other Buddhist traditions and Japanese Zen or in this particular warped (laughs) Japanese version of Zen, which happened to be what was around in my corner, um, I was delighted at the fact that these uh, traditions, came in Southern, Southeast Asian tradition, uh, they actually refer to functions of mine I could identify, hindrances, and, uh, emotions and states and things like that. I, you know, my ears pricked up, so. Still, then shortly after I ended up in a monastery and felt this was the most important thing to do, um, the sophistication of psychological adjustment was relatively modest we all believed ourselves to be on a higher path we had left the netherworlds of psychological realities behind and we were you know by virtue of our aspirations and the glorious timeless teaching we were this was an ivana express basically we didn't need to bother with psychological dimensions or hang-ups or uh, so either you were cut out for it or you weren't yeah, I remember sniggering about people who took terap- therapy, um, and, um, you know, I've come a long way. Not just do I have a therapist, I actually become one. Yeah. <laughs> so, the years went by, and um, I'm grateful for the patience and the kindness, compassion of the people at whose feet I have sat, and who helped me generally with being very authentic about their own experiences. And it was often not uh, their disquisition of timeless aspects of emptiness, non-reification, and uh, other big themes that helped me most. It was meeting their humanity. (coughs) Meditation, more precisely mindfulness, is something we learn through others. It's something we do not develop on our own. It's something we need other human beings to help us with. It's like empathy. You need people who are empathetic with you. You need help when you s- learn to be empathetic yourself with others. You begin to resonate with others. You need help in doing that. And you need to keep doing this. Otherwise, you lose it. You know? The same with speech. And... Uh, same with mindfulness. Yeah? If your mindfulness is genuine sati and not just some form of instrumentalized attentional focus, then you will need people who model that for you. You will people who help you when you make your own steps in trying to become mindful, particularly of things you may choose not to be mindful of. And you need to continue practicing this for as long as you live to keep that faculty Alive to keep that faculty vitalized. So I began to learn that uh, much of my monastic life, which I thought was basically about meditation, you know, if you come with Western eyes, individualistic Western eyes, then what you see when you meditate, you see kind of, you have your individualist goggles on, you see little sabutons and little cushions, and you see little individuals sitting all on their own cushion, on their own mats, and meditating against the universe. (laughs) <laughs> that was my vision, yeah? And the other guys who just ended up shored up in the same monastery, basically, was, uh, uh, yeah, that was just, you know, tough luck that these guys ended there as well. We, uh, you know, I didn't have anything to do with them, and some of them were really, you know, it's not people you would have associated with, yeah? You know? uh, they just, you know, they seem to have similar aspirations, so might as well put up with each other, you know? If you end... You know, in the mid 80s in Europe, if you end up in a Buddhist monastery, you generally have a sort of over-average resilience against societal conditioning. You know, you don't end up there because your parents tell you to go there. You know? <laughs> so you can imagine a bunch of individuals with this type of temperament don't necessarily make the most amenable and most malleable sort of communal environment. I remember the, nun- the nuns in our community were, the mo- were more clued up on this. They, didn't, they, they seemed to think that they had actually relationships. And we looked at each other and kind of said, do we have relationships, you know? <laughs> so there's a bunch of men living together, running an institution together, working together, meditating together, day and night, wearing the same uniform together, you know, eating the same food. And we were actually in doubt whether we had a relationship. <laughs> yeah. I remember this was a serious topic, you know, I'm speaking, yeah, I'm sure I pay a price about revealing this, but this was the truth. (laughs) This was the truth. We actually wondered whether we had relationship, just because we lived together, practiced together, worked together, meditated together, ate together. You know, looked after each other when one of us was sick doesn't necessarily imply that we had relationships, isn't it? You know, relationships were these messy things which could go wrong and which hurt and never ha- make you happy kind of thing. So, you know, psychology had a tough stand, a tough stance in, in monastic uh, environment. And it took years and years till it dawned on us that actually much of Buddhist teaching is relational. You know? uh, the Buddha says, yeah, Okay, here's these empty empty spaces, here's these trees, here are these little bundles of straws. Practice, don't don't chat, don't hang about, you know, do it. Yeah. But if you turn the page, he says, you know, and you know, after evening came, the monks left their meditative places and they sat together and talked the whole night about what they actually experienced in meditation. Yeah. And you see things like, you know. The man spent 45 years of his life teaching to people, all kinds of people, not just monastic people. Kids, snooty Brahmin youths, elderly folks, uh, rich folks, poor folks. You know, he's speaking to all kinds of people, people of all social strata. We have accounts of these teachings, wonderful accounts, which admittedly they're not really bedtime reading because they come from another time and it's not easy to translate this And even when translated in English, they still, some of them still sound a bit quirky and entail a lot of work to make them um, meaningful. But we have these accounts which tell us of a man who took relationship quite serious. He established monastic communities. He established forms of living, and he kept fine-tuning this for all of his life. He fiddled with monastic discipline. You may not know this because monastic discipline is not the most famous of uh, uh, Buddhist texts. But A, it's not as boring as you might think. Uh, B, it's full of wonderful, lovely stuff. If you want to know anything about the anthropology and the ethnology of, of early Buddhist communities, then you have to read the monastic stuff. The suttas, where they all get enlightened. You know, they listen to a talk. Buddha says, you know, doesn't belong to you, it hurts, it's changing. And he said, Oh, a bunch of, wonderful. You know? and this, it's a profound, transformative experience. By the end, at least a stream enterer, if not completely enlightened. Yeah? If you read the Vinaya, if you read the Monastic Discipline, there's other things in there. It says, Monks are not to play, supposed to play with toy windmills and things like that. And you wonder, hmm. When they need 26 rules about the chorus eating, yeah, you wonder, obviously, this man must have felt uh, a few table manners were of, of need here. Yeah? Make spoons where things don't hang down on the left and the right. Yeah? Obviously, this was felt a necessity to be you know, inculcated into his monastic. So, so you, you get a lot more realistic picture of the humanity of the people. Who practiced at the feet of the Buddha. In fact, I was when my Pali was good enough that I could actually read not just um, the English translation of my uh, senior monks who basically tried to use monastic rules as proscriptive, you know, who wrote little proscriptive summaries about monastic rules, largely meant to help young monastics come to terms with what they should supposed to do and not supposed to do in in daily life. But when you actually read the the texts in their uh, breadth, you recognize that on the way to explaining why a particular behavior was considered uh, not salubrious and why a particular behavior was recommended, so much information was given about the context of this that it made that life suddenly very tangible. It suddenly came alive how these people lived, related, worked with each other. I found that very, very informative, and things that weren't in the little summaries of my senior monks became noticeable. That it says, you know, how you should look after your teacher, and then you turn the page, and it says exactly the same thing: how the teacher should look after his disciple if the disciple is turning sick. Yeah, first, you know, you wash his feet, you look after him, you get help, you look for medical advice, this kind of thing. You think, oh yeah, this is what disciples do, and the teachers for Then you turn the page, and it says exactly the same things: what the teachers should do to their disciples. It was clear, clear principle of mutuality in there. Yeah, which because my teachers, uh, my senior monks, were not really, um, you know, time is limited, and you make sure that you get across to your junior members what they most need. So they don't need ethnological and anthropological information. They need to know what's proper and what's not proper. You know? So I understand that. At the same time, I found it very revealing about the actual relational dimension that comes across in monastic discipline when you read the whole of the context. As the years went by, it became obvious to me that one of the factors that made human beings grow on the path has to do with highly personal circumstances. We were all having access to a teaching. We were all having access to the same structures. We were all living according to a monastic discipline and pattern. And some people seemed to grow. For Some some people seemed to flourish in that. And others they just somehow didn't seem to put down roots, or they they maybe put down roots, but they somehow didn't blossom. They kept being sad, or they kept being unable to meditate, or they kept being unhappy in communities, or they kept going into strange little warps and loops. And you know, I speak of monastic community because I've spent the better part of my adult life in monastic communities, but you could now scrap the monastic bit and just go into any community where you have live-in situations, and you would probably come to the same conclusion. Some people somehow relate to the structure, relate to the context, relate to the patterns in there, and others don't. And what makes the difference is highly personal. I struck one of the most common uh, explanations of meditation that you come across in the suttas, It it occurs many more, uh, two dozen or more times, It's very simple. It goes, um, a young man of good family leaves home, goes forth into homelessness, um, becomes a monk, shaves hair and beard, dons the yellow robe, um, and then practices assiduously. And then it kind of zooms in a bit and describes how the monk comes home after alms round, Eats his food, washes his arms bowl, washes his hands, sits down, legs crossed, body erect, and establishes mindfulness. And then suddenly, speeding up of the narrative's tempo, and he puts down the five hindrances. He realizes the four jhanas, and you know, basically realizes what there is to be realized. End of story. Yeah. And you know, after a while of sitting down, cross-legged, and putting my body erect and establishing mindfulness. And doing that with a few other peoples, you know, in the years I started inflicting this on others, uh, you realize this is not normally what happens, you know. <laughs> you just, just don't sit them down, you know, wash their hands and kind of tell them breathe in, breathe out, mindfully, and they kind of do away with the hindrances and realize the jhanas and put away with, uh, you know, the samyojanas. They don't generally, takes a little, there's a bit missing in there, yeah? there's a bit missing in there. The narrative speed somehow is unaccounted for. The detail with which he looks for a place in the open or at the foot of a tree or in a rock or in a cave, you know, somehow doesn't, is quite the same speed at which meditative development is described. And it dawned on me rather late that much of that process is not in there because the Buddha and his people did not trust textual transmission of the information. They realized that any learning happens in the context of relationship. And it's the responsibility of that relationship to attune meditative advice to the particularities and the personality and the temperament of the people who are trying to do this. It has always been the prerogative of the oral tradition to actually adapt these teachings to the particularities of uh, the people who were motivated to take up that practice. This can't be just prescribed with a little list or with a technique or a method, as much as we would like to believe in techniques and methods. Um, And Indian tradition was suspicious of anything written. The Buddha shared that suspicion to some extent. He didn't write down anything. All we have, you know, there is this... However you're going to turn it, there is this gap of 300 years between the death of the Buddha, uh, around 400, and the appearance of texts on Indian soil. And we know that these texts as oral transmitted um, recitals have existed because we have epigraphic inscriptions from at least 250 BC. We have inscriptions which not just quote some of those texts, but they actually refer to the groupings of these texts as we have, as we find them now. You know, this word, uh, terms like pancha-nekaike turns up, which means one who knows the five nikayas, which these five nikayas are five segments of Buddhist textual transmission. So we know it was there. Something was there, but it wasn't written down in the way we have it. So we do know that the Buddha shared some of this suspicion, and uh, it is my way of making sense of this is any growth happens in highly personalized situation. Without you looking at what somebody brings to this practice, to this path, you're very unlikely to be a good teacher unless you're actually willingly acknowledging what... The, this person in front of you lacks or brings along as virtues or strength. So any teacher I know in any field of knowledge tries to pick up what somebody brings to uh, an aspiration. So meditators need to find out what they bring along. And when we look at what we bring along, we, we realize that we have highly personalized histories. And in those histories Different things happen, and without taking account of these different things, we're unlikely to really blossom. We need to find out what strength and what hang ups we have, and that's where psychology comes in as quite useful. There's many things that can be said against psychology. Mm. I'm still waiting for a unified field theory of happiness. Um, I would love to have some greater psychological understanding of what brings about compassion and strengthens compassion in human beings. Um, I would love to have health systems that actually know something about health rather than just being money distribution systems for easily recognizable pathologies. You know? Our health system, I'm pretty confident that in this country this is no better than in other countries, Health systems know nothing about health. Yeah. They pretend that if we uh, get rid of enough pathologies, what remains is health. Yeah. But that strikes me as somewhat naive. Yeah. So um, there are other things. You know, When I came back from Asia after many years, I found myself in a teaching position and I realized one day I had as I later found out, a number of anorectic women in my retreat. And, you know, I realized when giving them Ajahn Charles' line, eat little, sleep little, talk little, somehow, not just was that terribly ineffective, it was also immoral. Yeah? So some fine-tuning was definitely needed. Yeah? And at about that time, it began to dawn on me that, you know, psychology is needed, whether we like it or not. It's not about liking psychology. But we have psychological self-reflections because our culture now speaks in terms of neuroses and emotions and, and processes and, and things like that. And if I'm interested in growth, I need to find out what makes people grow. I can't just tell them how to do it, where they should go to. I also need to look at how fast they move and how they move and what they need, what they have in a lot of, and what they don't have. I need to take into account the individuality of these beings. My opinions about where they are is not really important. Mm. I need to make sure that they get energy. I need to make sure that they tell themselves good story. We're all preoccupied with narratives. We're all story makers. We all story our lives and our world. So, but the first thing is we need to get to a good story a good story is a story uh, not because it's true all stories are in some way true but we, a good story is a story that leaves me in a place where i can actually move things where i can change things where i have power where i am in touch with my energy Now, if, I tell, if I'm being told winds of change blow across fields of emptiness, who then can they harm? This doesn't do that to me. You know? I'm simply out of the picture. You know? This little phrase, this little poem, I presume it's a poem. Uh, I would expect it comes from Tibetan. Um, this little poem just sidesteps the issue by leaving out the bit that hurts, but also the bit that can grow, the bit that can actually wake up. It's just not there. This doesn't do justice to my, neither to my needs nor to my potential. So we need to look at this. And this is a messy piece. Yeah? Human beings are quite messy. Yeah? They, um, they're f- propelled by strange forces. Some of them they admit. Some of them they know and don't admit. Uh, some of them they don't know and don't admit. Yeah? And some of them they do know. And they aspire to And if you want to get one of these human beings brighter and more awake and more happy, you need to look what makes it tick. You need to be willing to actually engage with its messiness. You need to not just say, no, 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 don't want this, don't want this, do that, do that. You need to actually look what it wants and why it wants it. You need to investigate. I've come to respect the human mind quite a bit um, because however neurotic it may behave. Um, In most cases I've been looking at closely, it seemed that what what seemed a neurotic expression was actually the, the sanest and most promising strategy taken under particular circumstances, which may no longer be the circumstances this being lives in. The strategy chosen may have been a brilliant strategy 35 years ago, and now... The situation has changed, and you know somehow the inbuilt obsolescence hasn't hasn't caught on, and the the being still uh, continues with its pattern, but the reason why it does so is plausible makes sense, and this being once it understands that its strategy doesn't cut it anymore now, this being will change, not because I tell it. Not because I browbeat it, not because I explain it, not because I uh, threaten it, or not because I prohibit it, or not because I shame it, but because it understands that when changing its behavior, it will do less pain. It will be more likely happy, more likely fulfilled, more likely content, more loving, more present. Now, if that reflection happens in psychological terms, so be it. You know, not just human beings are messy, also psychology is messy. It's really messy, you know. Hundred fifty years of psychology, barely hundred and fifty years of psychology. We don't have a coherent body of knowledge around self. No two schools of psychology agree on what a self is or how it works. It's easy, even you know, post-classical analysis, you can find easily seven, eight models of self. If you try ever to square a Jungian statement about self with a with a you you know you're lucky. So, psych- there's not one psychology. There's many psychologies. You know? There's many many ways of getting confused, particularly if Buddhists start talking about things like no self. You know, we need to establish what a self is and how it operates before we can meaningfully communicate about what it means. <laughs> no self, or to be no self, or to be that no self is a, a worthwhile <laughs> pursuit. <laughs> so before we have actually some agreements on what we are referring to here, <laughs> uh, it's fairly pointless trying to convince us of <clears throat> something like attata. An and also we need to understand Buddhism better. There's not one Buddhism. There's many Buddhisms. You know? There's very early Buddhism. There's, uh, there's Abhidharmists, There's epistemologists. There's logicians. There's... Late Buddhists, philosophical Buddhists, psychological Buddhists, Yogajarins by Bashikas, you know the whole lot. If you the more you know, the more you're baffled what Buddhists believed across the board. You know. So there's quite some work. And this work can only be done by people who both are willing to learn something and to practice. You know. This will not be sorted out by psychologists and will not be sorted out by Buddhist philosophers. Just to be clear, this will be sorted out in your heart and nowhere else. Only in your heart can you sort this out. So my plea would be that um, we try to learn. We make these fields talk to each other. This dialogue has only just started. Actually, it has started a long time ago. Anagarika Dharmapala stumbled into a lecture of William James. I think he believed it was in 1904. Uh, James spotted him, you know, Dharmapala, in looking guy in a white garb, great reformer of Buddhism in, in Sri Lanka on a Western tour. Uh, uh, James called him up to the lecture and said, you say something about, you know, your background. And Dharmapala says a few things, 15 minutes, and then James famously exclaims, this is the sort of psychology everybody will be talking about in 20 years. Yeah. Um, Hasn't quite happened. Yeah, visionary statement, but it didn't quite. To follow through somehow. A few people tried, you know, using psychological terminology when looking actually at Buddhist texts. But most of these voices um, had no echo. Were left unheard in the first part of the last century. And <clears throat> gradually, those last thirty years, things have changed. People know enough of both fields. Many. Uh, Practitioners of meditation are also clinical psychologists, and and, uh, several Buddhists have deigned to actually learn something about psychology, and the discourse, the dialogue, is a lot more informed because you want two things to dialogue. You actually need to get informed people in both fields; otherwise, they just look at each other, and then they either try to make friends, yeah. Few Jungians looking at Tibetan mandalas, seeing four corners of mandalas, and they, oh yeah, Korternas, wonderful Tibetan Buddhism and Jungian psychology, very similar. Yeah? So that's one approach. Or you know, you kind of get a few analytics going, looking at Buddhism, introspective practices. Ooh, you know, meditation. This just sounds like uh, oceanic regression in all impunity. Yeah. So you, we have nothing to do with this. This is all wrong. So you basically get two trends. One trend wants to appropriate and say, "Yeah, we're all the same. Wonderful." You're saying exactly what I say, yeah? and the other saying, "Ooh, yeah, bad stuff. You know, this is the enemy over there. This is exactly what we want to avoid. You know, unscientific, unanalytic, not taking responsibility of personal activity, and so forth." So we're we're past that stage. People are actually talking. So. I think it's safe to applaud to this. It's safe to look at the core issue. And the core issue, from a Buddhist point of view, is called ignorance. Structurally, it's the major problem. This ignorance is referred to in two concepts. One of them is called avijja, not knowing, and the other is called moha, delusion. The, the not knowing part is often referred to as the... Non-acknowledgement of causality or of conditionality, more precisely. Let me spell that out. Conditionality is a big word, but it actually is something very simple. It basically is referring to a type of relationship. And that type of relationship comes into play, if you think of a pot plant, what it takes for a pot plant to grow. You need a seed, you need some water, you need some earth, you need some light, you need some warmth conditions. The seed alone will not make the pot plant. I have plenty of seeds on my windowsill at home and nothing happens. If you don't plant them, they don't grow. So even the seed doesn't actually do the plant. It's the interplay of these factors. None of these factors alone can produce the plant and yet every one of these factors is indispensable, not just for the uh, growth of the plant, but actually for its well-being. The falling away of one single of these conditions And the plant either doesn't grow or it dies when it has already grown. That's the relationship. So that all things are needed. None of them can monocausally produce the thing. And the falling away of any one thing endangers the whole project. That's what Buddhists call conditionality. They have complicated names for it. Sometimes they call it idha-pachayata, specific causality, or they call it dependent arising, which is... Uh, a huge body of teachings which deals more specifically about these things. Now we need to look at conditionality and avidja, the not knowing part, has a particularly hard time with acknowledging this conditionality bit. Moha, the other name for delusion, the other name for not knowing, refers more to the psychological forces that occlude our clarity, that actually stop us from understanding things clearly, which then gives rise to uh, fears that are focused on stuff that are either not as dangerous as they look or they're not there at all, or they focus on desires, which uh, try to obtain stuff, safety, power, enjoyment, gratification, uh, Fame to make us feel better. I'd like to read you a very short bit. It's from a famous Buddhist scholar who says, uh, better than I could do. There's more to ignorance than meets the eye. Ignorance is not mere absence of knowledge, a lack of knowing particular pieces of information. Ignorance can coexist with a vast accumulation of itemized knowledge. And in its own way, it can be tremendously shrewd and resourceful. (laughs) <laughs> he is a man who has felt the iron behind the velvet. Huh? As the basic root of dukkha, uh, unsatisfactoriness, ignorance is a fundamental darkness shrouding the mind. Sometimes this ignorance operates in a passive manner, merely obscuring correct understanding. At other times, it takes on an active role. It becomes the great deceiver, conjuring up mass a mass of distorted perception and conception, which the mind grasps as attributes of the world, unaware that they are its own deluded constructs. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. I think that sums it up pretty neatly. Yeah? Ignorance comes in many um, forms and shapes. Let me just name a few very simple ones. On a most fundamental level, ignorance as an energetic, on an energetic dimension is simple lack of sensitivity. It just means I don't pick up on stuff. It doesn't get through. I'm too thick or I'm too, my senses are too blunted uh, or my attention is so distracted and I simply do not pick up. So lack of sensitivity is is ignorance at its most elementary, most basic. That accounts for already quite a bit. I'm just not paying attention or I am not picking up on the signs when the world is talking to me. A second type of ignorance is about things I actually have access to, uh, but I prefer not to want to know because it's somehow unflattering or or it would call me into a relationship that I find cumbersome or wearisome or it would present me with helplessness. In other words, what psychology calls displacement, denial, uh, not wanting to know. It's the part of ignorance that is not about lack of information, but about not wanting to know. Sometimes I just feel a little tired in the crucial moment. Sometimes I am bloody-minded to not pick up on some of the signs that are all too clear and staring at my face. Uh, Sometimes I just conveniently rationalize this away. Uh, Now, this is a type of ignorance. Psychology has an awful lot to say about. There's a beautiful long list. Uh, Anna Freud has started uh, pulling together of uh, defense mechanisms, starting off with simple uh, denial, uh, going down to... um, trying to make things smaller than they are uh, when I can't do that anymore, trying to rationalize them, justify them, (laughs) and so forth. There's a whole list of beautiful defense mechanisms which in their clarity can nowhere be found in Buddhist teachings. And meditators should be acquainted with that. It's very useful. It explains why you're sleepy at the moment you're you're sleepy or why you don't see things or why things make you angry. This is, much can be gained by actually knowing one's own defense mechanism preferences. This is very useful. Um, Not because they're bad, it's, you know, they're legitimate. It's legitimate to have defense mechanisms. I wish you have defense mechanisms, just to be clear. But they're not intrinsically awakening. They don't necessarily help you wake up. They're legitimate as intervention techniques. But as sort of uh, nutritional supplements, they're really bad stuff. You don't want to rely on them. So this, in certain areas, we can learn a lot from psychological understanding. Maybe not in the big picture, but some patches we can, with great gain, as meditators and as Buddhist practitioners, learn something from psychology. But let me go to the next form of ignorance, the next dimension. This is um, simple lack of knowledge. You know, we're, we're missing pieces of information. The next dimension is the stuff we just don't know. You know if you don't know things, um, you you may be afraid to do things or you may not be able, you may not dare to do things because you don't know. I had to repair my keyboard this morning. You know, somehow one of my keys got stuck and I didn't know whether my device had actually detachable keys you know i tried with the fingernail a little bit and it kind of it felt awful so you know i gave up and then i i said well, what to do you know I, I need that key so i i don't want to risk you know i don't want to risk taking the thing apart and then not being able to so youtube came to my rescue and um, <laughs> found a wonderful little uh, YouTube video, which taught me not just that, hey, this key is detachable, it taught me also how to do it. So I looked at this for five minutes, and then I said, took a deep breath, and uh, said, so, so, you know, wholesome forces in the universe, so stand by, and uh, fished out the knife, and uh, attacked my keyboard. And lo and behold, it was detachable. I... cleared the gum the gunge out uh, from underneath and uh, it's back in in action so this is a piece of information I got in this case my guru is called YouTube and I got the necessary piece of information help me rather than fretting I might break something or rather than not do anything because thinking that I'm not clued up enough to be able to fix anything I'm only able to break things you know have a history of breaking things. You know? I could have gone in all kinds of psychological processes around this. I, you know, piece of information, this was fixed. I wish my life would always be as simple as that. I remember Thai villagers telling me that malaria, which in their country was quite prevalent for a while, uh, actually comes from drinking bad water, uh. which is not true. Malaria comes... From a parasite that is transported by the female of the anopheles mosquito, which uh, injects that into you while it tries to feed on you. It doesn't do that by malevolence. It just is hungry, and somehow it seems to carry that parasite. And um, it needs a lot of conditions to be functioning. You know, it needs. It doesn't fly very far. It needs good forest. So, if you want to get rid of malaria, one way to get rid of it's just. Lop the forest, um, which we're doing a great job at at the moment. Uh, the other thing, it needs actually infected people because it doesn't produce the parasite. It just transports it. And uh, thirdly, it needs to be within your reach. So it needs to have access to mammals. And uh, this is known. You know, Thai people, Thai doctors know that perfectly. They have some of very fine malaria stations. But um, that doesn't stop certain people still to believe that it comes from bad water. Now, this, this information is wrong, and wrong information gets you in trouble. It, likes, it leads you to conclusion. It leads you to feel safe when you're not safe, and it leads you to feel helpless when you're not helpless and in danger when you're not. So this is just bad stuff. This is a very clear example of lack of information. But sometimes we have information. I would expect many of you have lots more information than you can actually handle. You know, if your life looks anything like mine, I drown in information. You know, I need lots of strategies to cope with the information that you know cascades on me. And um, so often it's not the lack of information; it's the lack to organize information in organic, pragmatically applicable ways, so that we get a coherent, organic body of mobile knowledge which can be applied. That's the type of knowledge that if you add another piece, it changes the whole heap. Sometimes our information is not correlated knowledge. It's just you add another piece on the heap and nothing changes. It's not connected, it hasn't grown together. So this type of ignorance is how to organize the bits we already know how to find amidst the mass of information the relevant information and put it together in ways that are actually applicable in our lives. This is very tough type of knowledge. Knowledge, how to organize knowledge. Yeah? Academia at its best does that. Science at its best does that. It doesn't tell us how to live, but it tells us how to make organizable pieces of information useful for our life, meaningful for our life. Finally, a last dimension of ignorance might be the skill to actually live from where I have understanding of. The skill to actually do justice to what I already know. So much, I believe we we live against our better knowledge. We know things and yet we keep doing them, although we know they're bad. We know they would be good for us and we keep not doing them. There's a gap between what I know and what I have actually realized. There's a gap between what I have um, knowledge of and what I have realization of. A painful gap. I believe any genuine knowledge comes from this gap, from my capacity to handle this gap, from what I actually deep down know already and what I'm capable of actually actualizing in my life. Usually that gap is painful. So we, and in that gap, we need things like strength, we need courage, we need um, confidence, we need um, tenacity, we need the power to step back from our impulses and hold the whole of the situation. This type of uh, knowledge needs a lot of strengthening of virtues, this type of uh, Understanding calls for deepening and maturing. And we sometimes, you know, we, we do things we, we know we've done many times and we know the predictable outcome, and yet somehow we believe we get away with it, or we believe this time it's different, or uh, uh, I have more important things to do than to uh, attend to this piece of reality right now. And then this piece of reality. <laughs> lashes out and lets us know. <laughs> the universe wins usually. This, yeah? So your porridge burns or, you know, things don't actually stay put. They fall down on our toes. Or yeah. um, So it's good when we speak of the core issue, ignorance, that we learn to use all the savvy we have. You know, our dynastic wisdom, the family remedies, Psychological advice, common sense, Buddhist inspiration. You know, ignorance is a formidable enemy. We need all the tricks in the book. And there is no reason why we should be snooty and say, well, if it's not in Pali there, if it's not a canonical reference, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to apply it. I'm not going to. I can assure you, if the Buddha would be alive today, he would do all kinds of things differently than he has done. I don't think he would wear a long toga-type cloth, you know. He, may be wearing, he, he might be wearing, uh, you know, Oshpukosh dungarees or so, you know, who knows. He is very likely to use a lot of psychological language because some of his thinking was psychological. If you look at the four truths, they are actually not so much statements about reality. In fact, the closer you look at his teaching which has come down in history as the Four Noble Truth. Even though it's clear, Indology is clear that the concept of noble is a later addition. The concept of Sacha doesn't mean true, uh, truth as in, you know, propositional truth in English. It means something that is an undeniable self evident <laughs> reality. <laughs> so Four Noble Truth is is one of the biggest Buddhist misnomers, yeah. Uh, one of my teachers, uh, American monks, always made fun of said, you know, it's like somebody gives you a key, you're in prison, somebody gives you a key, slips you the key, and then you thankfully accept it, and you hang it on the wall, and you start bowing and praying to it, and, you know, <laughs> great reverence for the key to your freedom, and, uh, you know, to actually be believing that things are painful, that there is suffering in the world, is not intrinsically liberating, yeah? It doesn't make you freer if you believe in suffering. That's not the point of this teaching. The point of this teaching is that you understand how you personally suffer, how you arrive, your degree of collusion, if you allow me to use psychological language, your own responsibility in what you complain about. There, some psychological self-reflection may come in quite handy. Rather than feeling, yeah, this is my bad karma, you know, which is another distorted notion of teaching. Um, uh, you know, you actually look. What am I? What am I contributing to this type of suffering? You know, what was my expectation? What was my activity? What did I leave out? You know, what does it hinge on? Can I investigate the conditions that bring about this particular type of unhappy experience? Uh, does she get it? If she doesn't get it, what does she do different? <laughs> Yeah. So those were the quite useful ways of in, inquiring into the specific dynamic of the arising of this suffering. And that's what this teaching is pointing to. So let me end. What are the things that I see are under my Buddhist teacher's hat, looking at psychology, what would I criticise? I would criticise that there is no coherent body of knowledge of what makes human beings fulfilled and happy. I would criticize that most psychological systems I'm familiar with are preoccupied with illness, with lack of health, with pathologies, with warped neurotic pattern. Richie Davies is famous for saying that when he showed the um, Dalai Lama models of human minds meditating, the Dalai Lama saying, why do you study depression? You know, it's fine that you do mindfulness with depressed people, but why do you study depression? You should study compassion, you know. It's good that you learn something about how depression can be counteracted. Fair enough, yeah. But important is compassion. You should not study just the problem. You should study actually stuff that's good, yeah. Use your whole system and your wits and your research methods on the genesis of, you know, Brahma Viharas. Very interesting take, isn't it? Bring about not just the, uh, the, the weaning ourselves off unhealthy pattern, but actually bringing about the genesis and the production of good stuff. You know? Strengthening this systemically rather than just trying to get rid of little topical problems. A very different vision of humanity. A very different vision of growth. So another criticism would be it's, it doesn't say much about health, about growth, about happiness, or it has only just begun. It doesn't have an introspective discipline. That would be a a big criticism. It has so many different self-models that it's so easily to create conflictive statements. It's not really coherent. If I change hats put on my contemplative therapist hat and looking at Buddhism, I have a few things to say. Yeah. I have some criticism. Buddhism doesn't do very well when it comes to developmental realities. It yeah. doesn't make a very clear distinction between need and greed. Differing Buddhist teachings, different traditions, and different teachers obviously account for these doctrinal uh, gaps. By their personal skill or by their life experience, by their intuition, um, they patch up. Many people who don't know about developmental psychology may still be fabulous teachers because they have just understood something about their own growth or about the growth of kids or communities or individuals. So it's not to say because there is no overt doctrinal developmental acknowledgement about, say, developmental stages In uh, uh, many forms of Buddhism, not all forms, but many forms of Buddhism, Um, doesn't mean that it's completely absent. But I would wish now that I had had some greater clarity about the concept of need, for example. Because if you try to renounce a need, you don't get stronger as you do when you try to renounce greed. When you try to renounce a need, at best you end up with some form of retardation, at worst with atrophy. Yeah. This is crucial for meditators. It seems to take a f- best better part of the first half of one's life to figure out the distinction between need and greed. I wish I could give you a neat and clean cut distinction. I can't. This has to be painstakingly found out in the you know, in the crucibles of your own lives. But there is such a distinction, I have no doubt, and it's crucial that we find out this distinction. That not all of our whims are needs, even though advertisement language likes to like us believe that I need more of your attention, or I need more of this, or I need a bigger car. That's probably not a need talking there. <coughs> At the same time, there are needs. You know, Human beings grow, and if you're interested in growing, as a teacher and as a therapist, I am professionally interested in what makes human beings grow. I need to take into account what these people, not just what they say they want or what they say they need, but what they actually need. I can't help seeing that what makes people grow and blossom is highly specific. Buddhism universalizes suffering. yeah, And then you end up with the winds of change blowing across fields of emptiness. Yeah. Your friend's wife dies, and he says, well, it's impermanent, sorry, don't, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. That was clear from the beginning. You know, you knew this wouldn't last, you know. This is not a particularly effective way of holding this person's pain. It's not terribly compassionate either. Um, so universalizing suffering, yes, this is important. We are preoccupied as Western folks. We are preoccupied with the content of experience, This is the Western bit, you know. We're bit good at the horizontal bit. Focusing our attention on a life as it unfolds in time, on the content of our experience. This is the preoccupation of Western thinking, Western philosophy, Western psychology, right there from the Greeks onward. You know, the autonomous subject, that's one on our shrines. One of these autonomous subjects, you know, self-determined, self-recognizing, self-actualizing in the world. This is a big part of the story, but it's only half of the story. The Eastern tradition has to offer something, and they say something about the vertical dimension, the timeless. (laughs) That timeless dimension doesn't focus on the content of experience, but on the nature of the experiencer, how this apparent subject constitutes itself that then seems to undergo a process of experiences. So the Eastern tradition, specifically Buddhist traditions, insist on the necessity of a shift of awareness from content of experience to actually to the nature of the experiential process or the person or the subject that makes this experience. Now, this shift is hard to do because it feels just damn personal if I get something or if I don't get something. I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I think, this is my drama. This is my life unfolding. This is my unshaven beard. This kind of, you know, we're taking life very personal. We have so many reinforcements on this. Our language, our perceptual apparatus, our culture, all of them enforce the personalization of experience. And there are some intrinsic flaws in that. However, once you have acknowledged that most of what you experience has a universal dimension, There's a time when you need to acknowledge the particularity of your life. You have gifts, you have strength, you have capacities, you have experiences that are particular. I grow when I'm being met in my particularity. It was specific teachers who have reached me. Not generic Buddhism has reached me, you know. It was specific guys who touched my heart, who made me sit, who made me go through difficult things. It was specific people who helped me, who were there when things were rough. It was specific people who galvanized some of my insights, you know. These were genuine specific individuals who touched my life and who made me grow and who helped me, not because they generically treated me as a, a 75 kilos of biomass, you know they related to my particularity. And it's that which gave me confidence. It's that which gave me strength. It's that which gave me solace. So, yes, my life is universal. I won't think anything nobody, uh, that hasn't been thought before. All my horrors and all my delights will be have been experienced by other human beings. And yet, there's something particular about this being here. Yeah. And I need to be in relationship to that. There's a part of dukkha that is met with, by reconciling with the universal dimension of my life. There is a part of dukkha, uh, of suffering and unsatisfactoriness, that is being met by being met on the personal dimension. And it's clear to get this apart. It's clear to look at where is that suffering occurring? Where does this need to be met? So we can't sidestep this by just turning into empty fields and blowing winds of change. Dukkha is not an illusion. It's happening. Happiness is not an illusion. It's happening. The Buddha, Buddha early days was very clear. This is all taking place and it needs to be met compassionately, realistically. Without losing the big picture, we need to be able to hold the minutia and the detail of our lives. So, My encouragement would be to continue doing this. Um, I trust you have long started doing this, and um, I'd like to end. Um, Do we have a little bit more air? And if there are questions, I'm happy to respond to those. Yes, please Thank you very much. I am um, curious about the um, the reality of racism and the um,